0: Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, John chapter 6. We're starting a new series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. This is primarily going to be based in Matthew's Gospel. And the reason we're doing this is because there are an awful lot of people who claim to be Christians that don't actually do what Jesus said. Matter of fact, a lot of them don't actually know what he said case in point, some of our past presidents, like the last four in a row, who have claimed that they're followers of Jesus and at the same time mm, use profanity in their speeches. That's kind of not okay with Jesus. We need to be doers of the word, not just hearers only, and in order to do that, Jesus said some pretty extraordinary things, especially in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And so we'll find a lot of these sayings. Uh, There are almost 70 of them, and I doubt that we'll cover all 70, but there are almost 70 of them that one could say, hmm, did he just say that? Jesus used difficult things to draw our attention to the things that we need to be doers of. Many people are actually unaware that Jesus said many of the things that he said. And I can tell you this, that your worldview is going to get turned upside down by some of the things that we'll be studying. And at the same time, it'll actually be turned right side up because it's going to be upside down from the world. The world has views on many things. Interestingly enough, the Jewish people, if you've ever been to someone's home who's actually Jewish, you will find on the doorpost a little thing called a mezuzah. It's usually anywhere between about six inches long and Three or four inches long. It's normally turned away from the door. And inside it is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. And it goes on to remind the Jewish people that they were to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. And it says that these commandments, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter six, the first 10 verses that these commandments they were to keep and they were to write on the doorpost of their house, they were to wrap them, to bind them on their arms. So when you travel to Israel, you'll see Orthodox Jewish men would actually have what are called phylacteries they are wrapped around their arm and also on their forehead and it actually contains the word. Well, that's not exactly what Jesus was getting at. And although the Bible says to bind it on your heart and to bind it on your mind, it doesn't do a bit of good if you wear a box on your forehead but don't do what it says. And that's not meant to be so much mocking as it is an exacting example of why these things are difficult. The word of God is supposed to be inside of me and therefore it will come out of me. But it can be in my mind and not make it to my heart And if it doesn't make it to my heart, it likely won't make it to action. And as we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only, the most important thing we can know is not just what it says, but what to do with what it says. Amen? We'll be at the Lord's table at the end of our time today, so you should have gotten communion elements when you came in. If you didn't, we'll give you an opportunity to get those As we draw to the end of our service time together today, would you join me? We'll pray and we'll pick up with an introduction here to the hard sayings of Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world that the world through him would be saved. Lord, to those that call upon the name of the Lord, your word says they will be saved. And so, Lord, we're calling on you to speak to us as your people today. Make us alive. Enlighten us to truth. Help us to hear it and obey it. We give you this time and ask that you would speak to us as your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First verse 60 of John chapter 6. And therefore, many of his disciples when they heard this, and we'll get to what the this is in just a moment, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? You see, after hearing what Jesus has said, they're they're like, what do we do with that? Why why would we even care about such things? In John chapter 8, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, Abide in my word. You are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. You you see, if you don't know the truth, then the truth can't set you free. And if you know the truth, you're obligated to be doers of the truth. These things all go together and I think a lot of Christians simply believe that if they do their duty, they accomplish some obligatory worship service, they come to church, that ultimately, well, that's what defines me as a Christian. And while church attendance and Bible study, all these things are wonderful, they're even necessary. All of the church attendance in the world and the Bible study in the world and even scripture memorization in the world will profit you nothing if it does not go from your head to your heart to your hands. If you're not a doer of the word, then the word hasn't set you free. You just simply heard truth. Truth is only as good as what you do with it. John 14, verse 21, And he who has my commandments and keeps them, is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him Now, notice what it says verse 21 John 14 famous chapter verse 6 I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by me amen but what does it say after that who has my commandments and keeps them. Doesn't just know them in their head, but's actually a doer. In our chapter, chapter 6, verse 46, it says But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, and when the flood arose and the steam beat violently against the house, it could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But those who heard and did nothing is like the man who built the house on the earth without a foundation, and against it the stream beat vehemently. And it immediately fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Church, those are the words of Jesus. Jesus said that we are to be doers of the word. Not just hearers only. That is not just from James. That's from Jesus. And so when God speaks to us, He's speaking to us for a reason. Let's look now at its entirety, verse 53, that includes verse 60, which we already read. And then Jesus said to them, and here comes the hard saying, and we're going to look in a tertiary way at this today, and we'll pick it up later as an actual hard saying. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, momentarily, you're all going, Okay, so were you supposed to be carnivore, you know, cannibals? What, what does that mean? Matter of fact, the Catholic Church actually practices false doctrine because of this very verse. They believe in transubstantiation, that the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, as we take communion, literally become the actual body and blood of Jesus. Is that what Jesus is actually saying here? And this is why these hard sayings are so important, because if you don't know how to rightly interpret the word of God, then you could come up with some pretty strange things. And you can end up in some very weird doctrinal positions. Thankfully, this is one of those passages that actually helps us interpret itself. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So you're kind of thinking, you know, what were the disciples thinking at this moment? Okay, well, I guess I got to take a chunk out of Jesus's arm. You know, you you think about it. That's what he's saying. If If you look at this and you just interpret it at first glance, it's like, oh, man, I'm not sure I'm up for this. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed and he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me I live because of the father and so he who feeds on me will live because of me. That's a kind of a gross passage. It's like man. Here it comes though. This is the bread which came down from heaven. In other words, he's talking about communion. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. And these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Yeah, it is. At first glance, it is difficult, but it's not if you understand why Jesus came in the first place. You see, as you use these things as an example, you begin to realize that we are prone to either spiritualize things that need to be taken literally or take literally things that need to be spiritualized. We love to do both. Why? Because it eliminates us from having to do the actual thing that Jesus is getting at. If I can take a literal command, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a command, amen? You're actually supposed to do that. That's not to be spiritualized. But you can spiritualize it. Well, of course I love the Lord. You know, I go to church That is a spiritualization of it. The Lord isn't after your church attendance, though he wants you to go to church. He's after your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He literally wants all of you. He doesn't just want you on Sunday. Do you understand? Super important, church. Because that's a literal command for you to give God all of you. You could spiritualize it and say, well, you know, I I give him Sunday morning. You can do these things both ways. Or I can make a literal command out of something like you need to eat Jesus. Need to chew on his arm. Need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Or that somehow this literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. Let me just set you up on an okay course here. This is grape juice and a matzo wafer. And it's going to be grape juice and a matzo wafer after you eat it. Okay? And drink it. Why? Because Jesus interpreted this for us, he said, as often as you eat of this, do so in remembrance of me. Not that you're actually eating his body and drinking his blood, but you're remembering what he did at the cross. Amen? We have to be careful because we can start going down crazy roads. Jesus was teaching, in essence, a new way. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 33, it says, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but you eat and drink? And they're referring to, the, in essence, the, the kosher laws of, of not eating certain foods and making sure that your food was prepared correctly and all those kind of things. Jesus answered and says, Can you make the children of the wedding fast while the bridegroom is with them? But in the days to come, when the bridegroom shall be taken away, they'll fast in those days. In other words, Jesus is explaining this to them. And he says he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Likewise, it will make it tear. And also, he goes on to say, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. In other words, you guys are hung up on your traditions. You like to do things a certain way. You have begun to think a certain way, and because you think it that way, you actually think that's truth. And so for the Pharisees, they'd actually begun to worship the word of God itself. Now, while the word of God is intended for us to know and to do, it's not intended for you to worship your Bible. You worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? Bible study, listen well, Bible study can become an idol to you. Did you hear what I just said? It can become an idol. If you think you have life because you study the Bible more than other people, that is heresy. Now hopefully, as you study the Bible more than other people, you're also going to be a better doer of the word than other people. But if you just study it because you think that the Bible itself is going to give you life, Jesus said you're wrong. He said, these words speak of me. Not of themselves. You can't even extricate the Bible and begin to just simply worship the word of God. We worship the king, the word speaks of the king, amen? That's a subtlety, church. And it's an easy one to miss, and here's why. Because you can just simply then, well, I just, you know, I do my daily devotions and therefore I'm okay with God. Or I go to church, therefore I'm okay with God. If the word of God has not penetrated your heart and then turned into action, you haven't gotten the message correctly. It's supposed to do something to you, not just be in you. Head knowledge and heart knowledge are not the same thing. You could memorize the entire Bible cover to cover, and if you fail to do what it says, the Bible says you're not even one of God's kids. Does that shock you? The Bible says that. Jesus said that. It's one of his hard sayings. The reason we're covering these things is to square, square away a lot of what we have that are misconceptions in our life about what God wants from us. Our personal traditions. The way we do church. The position we have when we pray. I get some of the strangest emails. You know, it's like, it's like God can't hear your prayers unless you're on your knees. Now, Let me be really clear. Pray on your knees. Pray standing up. Pray while you're driving, most assuredly. (laughs) Pray always and at all times and in every way pray, but there's no specific position to prayer. Your prayers are no more effective because your hands are like this than they are like this. Or like this. Now you may not agree with that. But the fact of the matter is, prayer is not a position, it's an attitude of heart. I I have literally prayed while I'm driving. And it's like, I don't close my eyes when I do that. So if you have to close your eyes to pray, then my prayers were ineffective. Why am I saying this? Because our traditions say, well, you have to be on your knees, and you have to fold your hands, or you have to hold them like this, or we all have these favorite things that like, this is my, this is my go-to things I need to do. If you have a prayer closet, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord if you have a prayer closet, and you've got post-it notes of all the people, in, praise God. But can I tell you, not everyone has one of those. And I've had people do, well, you know, if you just don't have a prayer closet... That's just simply not true. But we can turn our traditions into the word. And so now we're just simply doing what the Pharisees did. We're passing along our traditions. Why do your disciples, they do fast, they do these other things, so they're obviously one of us, but they don't keep kosher. Jesus was going to teach them a new way. He's going to say, really, it's going to come down to a heart issue between you and me. That's why when we talk about our salvation experience, have you received Christ into your heart? Why is there a difference between your head and your heart? Because I can know a lot of things and do nothing with them. That little you know, 16, 18 inch difference between the top of your head and the center of your being makes all the difference in the world because a lot of people know about Jesus but they don't know Jesus. Every Muslim on earth knows who Jesus is but unless they've confessed him as Lord, it doesn't do a bit of good. Most Buddhists know who Jesus is but unless you confess him, As Lord, it's not the same thing as knowing about him with your mind. And so Jesus was pointing them to a new way. In the book of Job, there's an interesting interaction Job and his friends are having. And they say to him, what do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much, much older than your father. They were basically saying, look, we know more than you do. This slash, there are a lot of people that know more than I do. There are a lot of people that know more than you do. It's not about what you know, it's about what you do with what you know. Amen? Joy, Amen. Job's friends are going, we know more than you do. Yeah, but you're not doing anything with it. That's why you're picking on me while I'm sitting in the city dump, scraping boils with pieces of pottery, and all you can say is, who sinned, you or your mom? Job didn't need that. He needed compassion, and he needed tenderness. He needed gentleness. He needed someone to comfort him and Job's friends were miserable comforters, and yet the Lord of hosts is the God of all comfort. You see, they knew up here, but it never got here. Church, we need to be a church that is filled here with the word of God and filled here with the love of God. That will cause us to do with our hands the things that God wants. It adds a new depth, it adds a new dimension to our existence in Christ. You see, as you think on this, the law expands from just the things that we can see to the things that truly are. It's magnified in eternity. That's why Jesus said so many things like, Look, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. If you look after a woman to lust, you've committed adultery. He was going from the head to the heart. It's a heart issue. You will never murder somebody without first hating them, right? Unless it's accidental, and then it's called manslaughter. It's not murder. When the Bible uses the word murder, it's intentional, it's not accidental. You didn't swerve on the freeway trying to dodge some piece of debris and accidentally take somebody's life. No, you intended to kill them. Where did that start? Right here. And it went from here to here. That hatred sat into your heart so that you then went and did something about the hatred that was already there. That's why you never fix those kinds of problems. You can't fix hatred with more hatred. You can't fix racism with more racism, right? Am I right? You can't. It will never work that way because evil begets evil, and righteousness begets righteousness. So, righteousness is God's position. And so, Jesus is talking about look, we need to have a new paradigm that we're operating from, a new depth, a new dimension. Every adulterous relationship starts in someone's mind. They fail to win the battle in the mind. And because they don't win the battle in the mind, then the sin takes control of their life. The battle could have been fought in the mind. And then the heart wouldn't be inclined towards someone that you're not married to. You see, this is a new dimension for people. Because we're used to, if I think it, I'll just do it. But your mind is supposed to be controlled by the spirit of the living God. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer's mind is now controlled by the spirit of the living God. I now think differently because I have a new control system. I got a serious Computer upgrade in my mind. I've got new antivirus software up here. An awful lot of Christians have the same viewpoint as the world. I can just harbor these things in my heart and it won't have any effect on me. It's not true. That's why all of those things which we take into our mind that we do not actively apply the spirit of God's ability to deal with those things can affect you in a very negative way. And so Jesus in these hard sayings is trying to get people to think outside of the box. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uttered all kinds of things. That's why when he said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart already. It's just a half a step away from the real deal. That's why pornography is so so horrifically dangerous. Let me be really clear, and I want you to listen extremely carefully to what I'm gonna say right now. Don't put words in my mouth. I am not telling you pornography is ever okay. But I am telling you that it is not sin to see someone naked. You know how I know that? I have friends that are doctors. They see people naked all the time. It's part of their job. It's not a sexual thing for them. It's actually a work thing for them. So how does that happen? The mind being guarded by the spirit. The spirit says that's someone else's daughter, that's someone else's son, that's someone else's wife, that's someone else's husband. That happens because the spirit of the living God is directing your thoughts. So important that we get this because the spirit of the living God is not in control of your thoughts, then it can turn into, in that case, lust. Or that hatred could turn into violence, ultimately leading to murder. This is a new paradigm for people. You see, that wasn't the world that Jesus was in at this point in time. Because very few people had received him. Very few people had the Spirit of God. And so it does matter what is on your mind in that sense. James said it this way in James chapter 1, verse 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust. In other words, innate within us is the capacity to see someone that we're not married to and to have thoughts that are inappropriate. However... When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. You see, there's a pattern to this. The battle is won before the lust happens in the mind. That's not my spouse. I have no right to think that about that person. That is someone's mind who is governed by the Spirit. You see, we don't want that. Well, I have the right to think that way after, you know, well, God made me this way. No, God didn't make you that way. Don't blame God for your sin. Everyone is tempted when he's drawn away by his own thoughts, her own thoughts. That's not God doing that. That's us not submitting to the Spirit telling you, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 that's not okay. She's over there. You can look over there. Right, guys? David said, I will make a covenant with my eyes. The reason I'm drawing your attention to this is there's a very short distance between those two things. That was merely temptation and not sin. You can sit there and stare. Now it becomes lust. That is sin. What stops that? The spirit of the living God dwelling in you. Hard saying because we confuse thought and spirit. You can have thoughts that are not sin. It's what you do with those thoughts that determine whether they're sin or not. Very close proximity. What's on your mind matters. That's why Paul would write to the church at Corinth and say flee fornication. Why? Because it's not fornication to just simply see something it's to dwell on it and then to act on it. That's when it becomes sin. So go the other way. What happened in the life of Joseph? You're all Bible students in Potiphar's house. What's going on? Wife's kind of like, Joseph, come on over, chop some coffee. Joseph's going, uh uh-uh. uh. Ain't happening, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. She's going, but oh, you know, Pharaoh's out. And, uh... and this could easily be reversed, so this is not a male female thing. I'm just going with the story that's in scripture, okay? Joseph's booking it, right? He's out. I am fleeing immorality. That was one up here. He made a choice. To do what God told him to do. Flee immorality. The Ten Commandments contain, Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Right? What's he doing? Sins that way, I'm going that way. Not, well... Isn't it weird how we just entertain things? You're like, it's like you're trying to see how long you can withstand the attack of the devil. And God's going, hello. It's me. It matters what's on your mind. May not be sin yet, but it doesn't take long for it to get there, does it? where the battle's won that's why we have to make the decision to allow the spirit of god that dwells in us as paul writes to the church at corinth there in chapter 3 and chapter 6 he says much the same thing in both places your body is the temple of the holy spirit your mind is supposed to be controlled by the spirit of god of god who dwells in you Your your temple is supposed to be a holy place where holy transactions take place. And so these hard sayings get to the core of this dilemma. We have to have the right head attitude to have the right heart attitude to actually do the right things with all that God's given us. These are all pointed this way. The history of these sayings is actually quite simple. There's a book, actually, you can get it by F.F. Bruce, called The Hard Sayings of Jesus, and it's actually not that old. I think it was written in 1983, but if you read through these things, it just gives you all these things that Jesus said, and you can imagine a crowd sitting around going, hmm, I don't know about that one. I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly okay hating that person who hurt me. So imagine when Jesus said, no, I say to you, do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. For my name's sake. They're going, mm, "Not ha- you don't know my husband. You haven't hung around my uncle. No! And Jesus is saying, yes. That's exactly what I want you to do. Why? Because he loves you. And he knows what bitterness does over time. He knows that hatred, when it stays in your heart, will do nothing but beget more hatred. He knows that your anger can't be reined in by more anger. That those feelings of loneliness will not be made better by making someone else's marriage a lonely place. So Jesus speaks these hard sayings because he loves us. This passage we're in gives us really a way for us to understand this history And it really stems from proper Bible interpretation. And so I want to give you a few things to take with you this week. The Reformation, when it occurred, the split that occurred in the Catholic Church that birthed what we would call the Protestant Reformation. And we're talking about the early 1500s. Martin Luther writes this thesis, nails it to the church at Wittenberg, puts these 95 things on there. Among them are things like paying an indulgence to get forgiveness of your sin, obviously not found in scripture. There were all things that the Bible said this, but the Catholic Church was doing this. Transubstantiation was in there, which is that the body and blood of Christ was actually being consumed at the communion table. Once the bell rang, it instantaneously turned into, well, that's the real body and that's the real blood. And so Martin Luther says, no, this is that's not what Jesus meant. The reason that affects us is that that's our history. That's why we're sitting here today. We, we believe that the Bible is actually true. And then we've been commanded to do what it says. And so out of that came the the doctrine of sola scriptura. In other words, complete dependence on the Bible itself for our understanding of what God wants for us. It's a reason that from that time forward with the invention of the Gutenberg printing press, people could actually ultimately have a Bible in their own language. Most... Americans don't even know that the first mass-produced thing that was printed in the United States was, guess what? King James Bible in English. The American Bible and Tract Society was actually founded by Congress, an act of Congress. Think of that one today. But our history is such that when we think about this, we have to keep things properly in their context. First thing that you need to know when you're looking at your Bible. D.A. Carson came up with this initial thought, but basically that context is king. Put every passage in its proper context. If you don't do that, then your context is actually a pretext. It's what you already think it means, and so you just make up things as you go along. First rule for you, when you're reading your Bible, look for the context. Second rule, very easy, check your theology. There have been literally millions of Bible scholars throughout history. Millions. When you have an understanding of a Bible verse that is completely outside of the norms of Christendom, there's a pretty good chance that you're the one that's wrong. Moody said, if it's new, it's probably not true. People have been reading the same Bible for a very, very, very long time. And so when you come up with something strange like the, the crazy books that have been written on, oh, you know, the blood moons. and You know, the world's coming to an end next week. Look, the world may be coming to an end next week. But it will be only so that the church gets raptured the tribulation ensues for seven years, Jesus comes again, and then a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Right? Okay, so it's not, so if somebody tells you the world's ending next week, you can immediately dismiss that based on what the Bible actually says. That's not true. It is patently not true. Why? Because the Bible says so. All you'd have to do is look up any conservative commentary, you would find those basic truths there. You can do that on your phone, by the way. You can just go to Blue Letter Bible and boom, pop it up. And there it is. You can type in a little verse search. It's like, what does that mean? Oh, Pastor Jeff was wrong. Right there. Check your systematic theological understanding with other people. A third thing. The saints that came before you were not a bunch of hicks from the sticks. Matter of fact, they didn't have computers, so guess what they got to do? They got to sit with their Bible open. And again, I use all kinds of computer tools, but I can tell you this. When you're sitting and you just read over and over and over and over and over again, and you can reference and cross-reference the entire Bible with just your head, you're gonna have some pretty keen theologic understanding. So conservative Bible scholars throughout the ages generally all say the same thing it's one of the things that's so weird about teaching the bible in our day and time we attempt to put it into a modern context only so it's understandable in a modern sense but the truth is ancient it's ancient truth that we're trying to put into a modern context so that it's understandable to us in our day and time jesus did exactly the same thing that's why he spoke in parables that's why he told them stories that's why he didn't just sit there and give them spiritual truth after spiritual truth he said okay well this the kingdom of heaven is like we call that a simile right something's like something else the kingdom of heaven is like all Jesus is saying is like this is a way you can understand it please do that Don't believe every new thing that comes in. Somebody comes to you and, well, I just, you know, I just got this system of numbers and I found it in scripture, you know, it told me the exact date of the rapture of the church. That's a lie because Jesus himself said, no one knows the day or the hour. Only the father in heaven knows. So if you tell me, you know, the day and the hour that the son of man's coming, I can immediately call you a heretic because Jesus said, you're not going to know. And if you know, we've got a real problem, because you're probably the devil. You might be the Antichrist, but you're not going to have a message for the church. If someone says that the Antichrist is risen and they're a believer, you've got a scriptural problem. Because the Bible says the Antichrist is going to rise and the church is going to be snatched away. So if you're sitting around, oh yeah, the Antichrist is Putin. Putin. If he is, well, we're all in the tribulation. It's not true. And a fourth thing. You must rely on the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives life. Jesus actually said, the flesh is of no help at all. The Spirit gives life. I have life in the spirit because I am redeemed. Amen? And so as we go through these hard sayings, we're gonna spend some time looking at passages that will be familiar to many of you. Some of them will be, oh, I didn't even know the Bible said that. But hopefully as we do, they'll be really useful for your life and living. You should have received the elements of communion. If you haven't, if you just slip your hand up, we have some ushers that can come and bring them to you if you need communion, have not yet received it. If you would open up that bottom seal and pull out the matzo wafer that's underneath there. And this is a perfect example of a hard saying. Remember what Jesus said. He's speaking in chapter 6 of John's Gospel you got to eat my flesh. you got to drink my blood. Well, the Apostle Paul gave commentary on this. So we compare Scripture to Scripture. What did the Apostle Paul say? Verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night which he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said take and eat for this is my body broken for you as often as you do so do it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. And interestingly enough in the same manner if you pull that seal off of the cup notice what's missing from Paul's exhortation, he didn't say you need to literally eat Jesus' body or drink Jesus' blood. He actually gave us the proper context of it. He said the reason we're doing this is to remember what Jesus did on the cross, not to re-eat a portion of Jesus. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying to a Jewish believer, The cup of praise, the cup of hallel. What a beautiful thing. This cup is the new covenant in my blood and this do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Or as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There it is. There's the hard saying solved. Let's partake together. Father, we thank you for making it so simple. Lord, the sacrifice that you, Jesus, made on Calvary's cross that is sufficient for all of our sin. Lord, taking care of the debt that we owed, setting our feet on that firm foundation, cleansing us from all unrighteousness and making us holy in the sight of God of a holy God, all because of what you did. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, do this in remembrance of you, Jesus. And so we do. We remember you, Jesus. That your body was broken for us and your blood was shed for us. And as we have remembered, as we've celebrated at that communion table, the same way that you celebrated with the disciples when you first instituted this communion supper, Lord, as you broke the bread and as you drank from the cup yourself. Lord, you were showing forth what would happen. Lord, as you would be crucified and laid to rest in a rich man's tomb and raised three days later, Lord, we rejoice in the salvation that we have in you, Jesus. Thank you for dying in our place, setting us free from the bondage of sin and death.